Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. our truth, our life. Jesus alone is the fullness of the Father. And I want to promise you something this morning. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what page of your story you're in or what page of the story you open the Bible to, listen to me this morning. The point of your page is union with God through Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited to kick into this new series as we look to the Old Testament as we look to the Old Testament prophets and the way yesterday's preachers are pointing us how to live in today's fullness by laying down everything that would stand in the way of our union with God. And so this is what we're going to do over the next weeks together. We're going to find grace together. Somebody say grace. grace. Now, I love the word grace, and you might have heard it a lot. You might think it's a churchy word, but it's a lot better than you think it is. Maybe you've heard before that grace is an undeserved gift, and that's true, but that's like the tip of the iceberg of what grace actually means. Grace means a gift of God's delight that is his joy that he gives you until you're filled with the same joy. I'm going to say that again so you get it. Grace is this gift that God is so giddy and delightful to give you that you don't deserve, that you can't earn, and he's just like, I want you to take it, I want you to take it, I want you to take it, and he doesn't stop pouring it out until you're filled with that same giddiness of joy. So we're going to find grace together over the next week. Anybody want that kind of grace? Anybody want joy? Okay, because I don't think the problem going on today in America is that we have too much joy. I haven't heard that in any room I've ever walked in. We're going to receive grace together, and the grace that we're going to see is how to lay down, to lay down our burdens, to lay down our fears, to lay down our addictions, to lay down our uh, competing loves, to lay down our misplaced priorities, to lay down false saviors, to lay down anything that would keep us from fullness of union with God today. And today I'm excited because I I get to step into a story that I've read many times. This is the first time in over 20 years that I've been able to preach this story. So anytime you get to that, it's like, whoo, this could be fun for me too. So hopefully it's fun for you. Today we're going to look at the prophet Elisha and how we find our lives by losing them. Now I'm convinced that God has a great sense of humor. That his desire is, among many other things, to mess with young Bible students who are learning history because 
He gave us two of the greatest prophets of all time with nearly identical names and then placed them back to back in the story. You have Elijah and Elisha. And now here's the deal. When I grew up, I didn't go to church a whole lot. And the times I did go to church was over the summers in South Carolina in the deep south, y'all. And here's the deal. When they start teaching about Elijah or Elisha, you can't tell which one they're saying. They're like, all right, now we're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to look at the story of Elijah. And I'm like, was that a jaw or a shah? I'm not sure which one we're in right. We're just learning about Elijah. And I'm like, say the other one. They're like, Elijah? Well, there was Elijah and there was Elijah. And I was like, I, I am so confused right now. So I want to bring some clarity to us about these two prophets. Now, Elijah is, is properly understood as the father of the prophets. We see him show up actually with Jesus at the transfiguration alongside Moses, who is the father of the law. The law and the prophets, that's what we refer to as the Old Testament. So Moses and Elijah were these two massive heroes in the Old Testament. Elijah was the father of the prophets, and he was a revivalist among his people. I love Elijah's story. When Elijah comes onto the scene, literally he bursts onto the scene to confront the godless king of Israel, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel. Elijah was miraculously hidden by God and then fed by a brook through a raven. In Elijah's story, you see that, that he was used by God to save a widow and her son through a miracle of oil and flour. You see that later in his life, he would raise that very son from the dead. Elijah, through a simple word out of his mouth, ended a several-year drought over the entire kingdom of Israel. Elijah confronted the false gods of Baal, and Asherah, and there's this awesome scene in the Bible where with just a word, with a 20-second prayer, God calls for, or Elijah calls for fire to come down from heaven that God would, quote, show all the people that you're drawing their hearts back to you. And God responded with fire. Now sadly, just like Moses, Elijah lost his entire ministry through one act of violence. See, in this moment where he called for God to come by fire to show all people that you're God, the God of all love, he responded the same way that Ahab and Jezebel's gods did by slaughtering all of his enemies. This is something later that Jesus' disciples, James and John, were calling on him when they were angry at some of the people that wouldn't let them in. They said, do you want us to call for fire from heaven? And he said, you don't even know what spirit you're of when you think I'm going to partner with that kind of destruction upon the people I've made in my image. See, Elijah was a mighty man of God. He lost his ministry. And we reach this moment at the end of his ministry that God is graciously preparing to bring him home. And he tells him he's going to appoint a successor who is a boy named Elisha. And so I want to look this morning at three ways the prophet Elisha calls us to gain our lives by laying them down. Now, if you're following along, the first one is this. We've got to lose our plans for our lives and gain God's. You want to know what it looks like? We've got to lose your plans for your life and gain God's. When we first step into Elisha's story, it's easy to assume that he's nothing more than a farm boy to his family and a fanboy to Elijah. But when you actually look a little deeper inspection in his story, you find something miraculous. Let's pick it up together in 1 Kings chapter 19, and it says this. 
It says, Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Now, the first thing I want you to see is this. Elisha was part of a wealthy family. We find him in the story overseeing 12 yoke of oxen. Now, we're in America today. Unless you grew up in a farming community, that might not mean a whole lot. But listen, in Israel's day, in Elisha's day, to own one pair of oxen meant that you were well off because you were tilling your own land. But to own 24 oxen, you're leading a farming enterprise. Further than this, you see that Elisha is found in the very back. Most scholars believe the reason he was positioned with the, the 12th yoke of oxen is because he was the supervisor. It means there were at least 11 other servants walking with these oxen, and Elisha was over the whole operation. And in fact, as we'll see, all of these are his oxen to do with as he pleases. This man that we meet has everything the people of the day would have called the life. He was honored in his work. He was respected in his home. He was secure in his riches. And yet, when Elijah shows up and places his cloak over him, that was a well-known way of actually giving a mantle and a ministry. The minute he was inviting him and saying, I want you to learn from me. The minute that he did it, it says that he left everything and said, I'm in. Just let me grab my keys, tell mom and dad I'm out, and I'm coming with you. And the story is great because Elijah tells him after this, he says, okay, go and do what you said, right? Like, like talk is cheap. Go do what you said, and then come and follow me. And now here's the deal. This is where the story gets really crazy. I want you to continue to read with me. First Kings 19, 21, it says, Elisha took the yoke of all of his oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. This is nuts. This is the equivalent, all right, of Jeff Bezos firing every Amazon employee and affiliate and then bombing all of his own warehouses. This is the equivalent of Bill Gates cashing out his entire $130 billion net worth in single $1 bills and hosting the world's largest bonfire. Elisha showed up and took the whole future plan for his life and legacy and torched it so there would be no way back. You know what I find even crazier? He wasn't weeping or lamenting as he did it. He was throwing the city a party. He was like, here it is. I'm taking my whole legacy. I'm burning it. I'm burning the plows, and I'm putting the oxen on top, and I'm never looking back. Pastor Stephen Furtick, when he was writing about this moment in Elisha's life, he said this. He said, your greater life doesn't begin with building your dream house. It begins with burning down your old house. Revival begins with an act of arson. I want to give us a key idea for today, and it's this. To step into God's coming purpose, we often need to burn our current plows. To step into God's coming purpose for your life, you often need to burn your current plows. Let me say it another way. You and I can't arrive at God's plan for our lives by making tiny, gradual tweaks to our own plans. 
where God wants to lead us is on a totally different trajectory. I want to remind you these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. God is working on a totally different trajectory than your plans for living your best life. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Okay, only I understand that. All we go around today and we hear people talk about the American dream and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just but the Disney theology. Just believe in yourself. And I'm going to tell you, often, if you want to see God's plan for your life, you need to stop believing in yourself and your plans for your life because where he wants to take you is on a totally different trajectory and you can't get there by making little tweaks to your plan. I think a lot of times that's what happens. We open our Bible, we go to church, we want a Bible study, and we're like, just give me a little tweak to the plan. And when a story like Elisha shows up, they're like, okay, you want God's calling? Burn everything. You're like, no, that wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I just needed just a little, just a little tweak to the plan that would help me out. But often what we're going to find is this. Listen, you follow this in the story of Jesus. The disciples had to leave their nets. Matthew had to leave the tax collector booth. Cephas and Saul had to leave the birth names they were given to become who God created them to be. And you and I must leave the plans we've constructed and sometimes the family plans we've inherited that tell us what life needs to be in order to experience the, God, the life God has for you. So my question this morning is what are your plows? Maybe you've come in and your plows are a certain standard of living. You have an unspoken rule that for you to be happy, you have to have fill in the blank. I've got to have these things in my home. I've got to have these things in my friendships. I've got to have these things in my reputation in order for me to be happy. In fact, I think the problem often in, in the church with the big C is many of us are dying a death by comfort. Our whole life has been the pursuit of comfort and pleasure and stuff and entertainment, and we work our Bible study to follow the rules to get more of it, and maybe right now you're looking and you're saying, that's never going to satisfy my heart, and you feel a call rising up to love God radically. you got to burn the plow. Maybe your plow is playing your life safe instead of stepping into what God created you for. Maybe it's a limitation you placed on God or you placed on yourself. Maybe it's a way you're magnifying your past failures or your present circumstances and you're missing God's future that he's laying out. Now, I want to be really, really, really clear about this. There's lots of buzz today about people quitting their day job for their ideal dream life who have yet to prepare or sacrifice one iota for it. I want to say to you, you leaving your day job for your dream job without preparation is not burning your plow, it's just blowing smoke. Too many of us want to be revolutionary without going through the revolutions necessary for character and skills. Too many of us want the warmth of God's call without going through the refiner's fire. So I want to ask somebody this morning, is there a big dream anybody's got in this room that you feel you have from God for your life? Sweet, three people. So here's what we're going to do. I want everybody to close your eyes for just a minute because I think, sincerely, guys, this is the problem we get. If you just close your eyes and listen to my voice, I think the problem we often get is we are not allowing ourselves to dream big enough or to see a God that's big enough to worth following. 
So I want to ask the question right now. I don't want you to think about your present circumstances. I don't want you to think about your present job, your present net worth. I don't want you to think about anything else. I want to ask, what is the dream in your heart? The radical dream that God would raise up and say, man, there's something big that I believe God put me on the planet to walk through with him. Some calling. I'm going to ask that God would put faces in your mind. Maybe you're a parent and you're seeing the face of your children and you're seeing them stand on your shoulders. Man, that's a big dream. Maybe there's certain brokenness that you see in the world around you. Certain needs that just start to burn within you and you say, man, if I could be a voice of something toward changing that. There are gifts or talents or passions within you. Things that are not yet fulfilled, things that if you're being honest, you say, there's no way, this dream is so big, I couldn't possibly do it on my own, but there's a dream that's there. I want to ask for a minute, would you just let yourself dream again? Would you even just tell the Holy Spirit, maybe you've gotten so used to just doing the day in and the day out, you stop dreaming, and you put your hand on your heart, you say, Holy Spirit, I'll allow you to allow my heart to dream again. Now, in just this moment, I just want to ask this, every eye closed. As we talked there, is there something that you know I'm not going to ask you to speak it out. Is there something you know that you'd say, this is a big dream that's on my heart? If you do, I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand. Your eyes closed. You see a dream on your heart. You see something that's like, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. A big dream on your heart. I'm going to ask for every hand that's up that God would embolden your dream. And I'm going to ask for every person that's processing that in the days ahead, God would clarify your dream. Because there's something that he's put you on this planet to walk through with him. And he wants for us to dream with him deeply. Now that said, those of you who raised your hands, I want you to hear me. Oftentimes for you to see that revolutionary dream come true, there are many revolutions of building character and skills that God wants to take you through. And so when I talk about burning your plows, I don't mean you just go turn in, you, you know, your, your uh, two-week notice at your work and you sell your house without any further plan from God. I'm going to say that the awesome step of faith of burning your plow would be saying, I refuse to settle for another moment for not pursuing this dream, and I will take the long road of obedience, the small steps in this moment of daily rhythms of obedience to follow you as long as it takes for that dream to be a reality. That perseverance is burning your plow. So, Father, I pray that you would just speak to us in that. I pray that you would lead us in that because, Lord, we don't want to be guilty any longer of blaming you for us not doing our part. So I'm asking in this moment for each person that you would show what dream you're burning in our hearts, what place that you're desiring for us to go together. You agree with that? Say amen. Amen. Now, before I move on from this first point, some of you are like, he is, that was a short message. Yeah, that was just the intro to point one. Buckle in. I want to make one more note about this with burning our plows, and this is a universal truth for us, that any pursuit to find worth or success or love or joy or peace or fulfillment in your life that isn't Jesus himself is a plow that needs to be burned. I'm going to say that again because it's way too important. Any pursuit in your life, when you get up in the morning and say, I need this to be fulfilled and happy, anything to find worth, success, love, joy, peace, or fulfillment that isn't Jesus himself is a plow that needs to be burned. 
I'm reminded of the words in Psalm 73 that says this, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh and my dreams may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We've got a bad theology that moves people to seek God so that we can get some other treasure, some other dream, some other answer. And so I just want to remind us at this point, because what happens is we get restless if you're going to live there, because you're thinking, I'm following the rules, but I'm not getting the promotion or the spouse or the dream house. I just want to remind us this morning, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the portion we're longing for. And he's already ours, which means you and I don't live today for favor. We live from favor. And whatever that thing, when you just raised your hand a minute ago and said, I got this big dream, the only reason that's a dream worth pursuing is it's a unique dance floor that you get to go with your king and dance with him. And it's a story that he's writing. But it's with him is why it's worth seeking in the first place. What plows do we need to burn and lay down? For somebody this morning, it's this simple. For somebody, this is, this is the whole price of admission for the message this morning. You ready? Somebody just needs to just decide to be happy already. Somebody needs to decide that today you're just going to be happy already. Because you already have your portion. You don't need that next promotion. You already have your portion. Somebody needs to decide that you're just going to rest in him already. You don't need to climb another rung of the ladder. Somebody needs to decide that you're just going to be enough in him already. That you already have everything you need. Somebody, listen, the whole thing this morning, you need to lay your hand on your heart and say, Jesus, you are my portion, and I'm very satisfied. For some others, it's time to burn some plows and to throw some parties. So the first thing we've got to do is we've got to be willing to burn our plows. The second one is this. We've got to lose false humility and gain spirit-filled confidence. We've got to lose false humility and gain spirit-filled confidence. I want to continue in Elisha's story. So he goes through, he burns the plows, he follows Elijah, and now Elijah's about to depart, and he asks this question. He says, listen, I'm getting ready to go, Elisha. What is it you'd like for me to do for you? This is the greatest prophet that has ever lived and in 10 minutes you're filling his shoes and he says anything I could do for you what do you ask for in that moment maybe some advice I don't know an endorsement like can you give a state of the union and be like I'm endorsing this guy like follow him no Elisha straight up swung for the fences I want you to see this in 2nd Kings 2 it says Elijah said to Elisha tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken for you he says let me inherit a double portion of your spirit Elisha replied What's he saying? Everything you encountered with God, everything you've learned, all of your wisdom, all of your charisma, all of your gifts, all the lives that have been changed, just want that and uh, double it. Just double it. Who does that? You might think that, but who has the audacity to actually ask that in their job interview? This is what I think is happening here. Listen, Elisha actually believed that the God of the universe called him while he was at the plow, so what he requested was what was required for God's work to be done. See, what the people needed was greater than what Elijah could bring them because Elijah was being taken away and it wasn't fulfilled. So what did he ask for? It wasn't about Elisha. 
It was, listen, they need a greater, they have a greater need and they need a greater anointing. And so I'm asking for a greater anointing to meet a greater need. Here's the problem. A lot of us could never find ourselves there because of what I would call false humility. The second principle here, living God's plan for your life, is to stop playing it safe with false humility and get honest about what God's putting in your heart. And I want to define this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says this. It says, God set eternity in the human heart. I want to take that a step further. I'm going to say it's not just that God set eternity in your heart, but God set specific ways for you to partner with him to change eternity in each and every one of our hearts. And listen, he wants us to stop blushing and apologizing and hesitating and waiting for everyone else to see it and agree and simply to be bold enough to stand on what he's saying. False humility is when you believe something beautiful about yourself deep down, but you won't admit it. You have a hunch that there's a gift in you, but you make every single room prove it all over again. You make everybody call you out, and then what happens is somebody shows up, and they're like, man, I see this glory in your life. Oh, no, it's all God, brother. It's all God. It's not me. It's all God. Here's my problem with that. That's not what he wants. God was completely sufficient making everything. And when the creator put us on the planet, what did he say? I'm the creator and I made you creative because I want to co-rule with you. I want a partnership where Christ in you will become a specific facet of my glory on earth. And listen to me, every time you deflect, you diminish both hope and glory. Every time you deflect, oh, it's not me, oh, it's not me, oh, don't look at me, instead of, no, listen, this is a partnership and a dance that I don't deserve, this is a grace and a joy that I'm dancing in, but you're right, I found a connection of union with God and it pours out, and if it pours out in my life in this way, guess what, it means it can pour out in your life in that way, and when we all walk there, change can come to earth, there can be faith here, instead of empty compliments that we keep deferring and pushing away. And the worst part is this, when you deflect instead of detect the hope of glory that God put in you, you never walk in confidence in who you are. There are things right now that heaven is saying over you that need to be echoed on earth and you need to stop deflecting and start detecting it. We come boldly to the throne of grace with confidence. So a second question I want to ask is this. What's the unique passion and vision and voice God put in you? If he's preaching a sermon out of your life, what's the theme? What hope is he speaking through you that's different? It's a shade different than everyone else's. You see, the Apostle Paul got this. He showed up and he wrote at one point the most absurd thing he could say. He said, as with the other things I teach in my gospel. What the heck is Paul talking about? My, go my gospel, Paul? It's all the gospel. And Paul knew that. He said, but listen, but there's a unique partnership I walk in. There's a unique thing I bring. There's a unique revelation. And Paul's gospel looks different than Peter's gospel, looks different than John's gospel. He says we all bring something. Why? Because the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. We need to know who we are and step into it with confidence. So Elisha does this. He asks for a double portion. And Elijah says this back. He says, listen, you've made a difficult request. But if you see me when God takes me away, you'll know that it's been done. And sure enough, right after that, it says that he ascended on a chariot of fire right before Elisha's eyes. Because Elisha was willing to see the anointing. He saw the anointing. 
And so, at this point, Elisha, this is what I love in this moment. His response immediately is what I can only call spirit-filled confidence. Look at this, 2 Kings 2.14. It says, and Elisha, right after Elijah's gone, boom, first moment of this new double portion ministry, what's he going to do? It says, Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elisha went over. I want you to note a very key difference between spirit-filled confidence and cockiness. Elisha didn't take the cloak and say, who's the man now? <laughs> he took the cloak and said, where is the God of Elijah. Why? Because confidence comes with agreeing with heaven on how the Father is delighting to partner with you. Elisha knew that what he was doing was impossible. There was nothing in him or that cloak that could part the waters, but the God who made the waters has no problem moving them around. Here's the key in the story, though. This is where we need to get it. Nothing was going to change on earth until Elisha stopped blushing and started actually believing that God was ready to pour through the vessel that was him. Where is it time to take up a cloak of authority God has for you? And I want to remind you this. When we talk about authority and we talk about power, that has been so corrupted in our culture. We use power and authority to build our own platforms and listen to my voice. Now listen, power in the kingdom of God is always self-emptying love. That's all it ever is. Power in the kingdom of God means that you actually have the authority to do what? To lay down your life like Jesus so that other people can find it. That's what power looks like in the kingdom. But when we walk it away, listen, I want to tell you this. God has a very specific glory he's given you. There are certain things that happen, Emily Conley, when you walk through the door. When you just come, there are certain gifts that you bring with you. And you have two choices because it's already true. You can either deflect it and push away and, oh, no, it's not me, it's all God, which means we're going to get less of those opportunities. And we're never going to be able to connect where the glory is coming from. Or you can step into it and detect it, not with, not with cockiness, but to say, okay, where's the God of Elijah ready to pour through me? And I don't understand it, but when I walk through this door, this happens, and I'm going to stop blushing, and I'm just going to start doing the work of my Father to see lives restored. See, when that happens, heaven comes to earth. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the question I want to ask. We asked about a specific dream God put on your heart. What's the specific voice of authority? Where is it that you walk in the kingdom that, man, you see things? I got I to tell you this story real quick. Um, that God gave this fatherhood message in my life, this fatherhood anointing, the, the adoration of the love of the Father. And I grew up without my dad. I didn't know him. I didn't have a single memory of him. I was the least likely candidate for any kind of fatherhood ministry. Zero experience. But when he did it, he did it. And all of a sudden, the weirdest thing started happening. Now, I know you're shocked when you see this, but I'm actually not a bodybuilder. So I know that's, I know that's surprising. An average height man with an average frame, right? If you look at, like, average American Joe. God gave this fatherhood message. And the weirdest thing started happening. I would go speak at conferences and other churches, people I wouldn't know even here in our church. And at the end of messages, the biggest dude in the room you would see, that looked like, like the guy you don't want to meet in the back of an alley, would walk up slowly at the end of the message, and he'd always be kind of looking at me like, brow down. I'm like, oh, man, this is it. All right, Jesus, take me. Like, Elijah gets a chariot of fire. I'm going to get pummeled into the ground. It's all right. And I go down, and every time, I'm, 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 I could almost write the script. It's this. They say, I, uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to to thank you for your message, and I don't 
I don't even know why I'm doing this right now, but I just, and I stopped, and at one point, what he said to me is, he said, listen, this man is a strong man here, but he doesn't know the love of the Father, and you just need to envelop him, and I got to tell you how many times I've gone to hug some bodybuilder guy that basically, like, just wears me like a tie, right? They just wrap around me, and it's like, (laughs) so I got two choices. I can either argue and blush and push away all the time, and, oh, no, it's not me, oh, it's the Lord, or say, no, it's crazy, The radical grace of my king is he actually wants to partner with this. That's crazy to me. But he does. And what I know is this, when I speak about the father's adoration, that the strong men on the earth who know it in their body and need to know it in their soul come into alignment. I don't understand it, but I'm going to stop deflecting it. It's time to start detecting it because there's a whole lot of sons and daughters that need to know the adoration of their father. So here's my question. What's the cloak of authority he's given you? And where is it time to strike the water? What's the thing he said you're great at and you need to stop pushing away in false humility that's super polite but really uh, uh, insincere? Where's it time to strike the water? All right, one third of what I want to give and then we're going to land this plane today. How do we lay down our lives so we can gain them? We said we've got to burn our plows. We said we've got to come to the place where we lose false humility and gain spirit-filled confidence. And the third one is this, we've got to lose local faith and gain God's global heart. Lose local faith and gain God's global heart. Here's what I mean by local faith. Local faith is a faith that never leaves your house. It's a shut-in. It seeks God for what he can do for me. Every prayer is about my job, my health, my love life, my happiness, my provision. It may immediately take a tour to your immediate family or your friends, but listen, local faith never leaves your own hometown. I want to say to you that I think at times we've done so much to make faith personal, we've often failed to make it practical for people desperately needing to experience the power and love of God. So often it's, what's God going to do for you? What's God going to do for you? What's God going to do for you? And what happens is we keep dressing up the orphan spirit and putting scriptures on it. I didn't even plan on saying that, but that's good. I don't even remember what I said, but it was good. There's this... There's this trend. That's what we'll do, Cindy. You've got to listen to the podcast. We've got a podcast. You can go listen to it. There's a trend that we've become preoccupied with as God's people, that, that we get so preoccupied with God doing the miraculous so that somehow we can prove our own holiness or he can give us our own miracle. And I want you to notice something here. There's a contrast. The minute Elisha steps into the place to know that a double portion has actually been given to him, The minute he steps in this moment and strikes the water and literally, by the way, the only other people we've seen do this is Moses and his successor, Joshua, now Elijah and Elisha. So he's got a rich history of God's faithfulness to know what comes next. And you know what I find fascinating from this moment? Elisha's life is not about Elisha at all. Immediately he takes that faith and he moves five places. I want to encourage you. This will be the most exciting Bible study you could see. In fact, we've started putting together some sermon notes. We've got them under the leadership hub. So if ever you're listening to our sermons on Sunday morning, starting this week, it's starting right now, on the leadership hub of our website, we've got sermon notes for all of this. This next part for you will rock your world and change your life. You're looking for a place to Bible study, man, go in Second Kings, you're going to see this. Elisha immediately reaches out to five people, the sick, the poor, the powerless, the stranger, and then practical needs. 
Okay, can't walk all the way through it, but I'm going to tell them to you very quickly. Here it is. You ready? First, the sick. So he knows, I've got this power of God. I've got this authority. What is power? It's self-emptying love. So what does he do? He starts emptying himself. He immediately goes into a city where he finds their water source is diseased. And so it says he takes a bowl with salt and he heals the spring. The second one, he goes to the poor. He sees that there was a widow of one of the prophets and she was once this most honored woman, but her husband has died and now she's penniless and the creditors are coming to take her two kids away as slaves and she's got nothing left in her house but one jar of oil. So Elisha leans in and he listens to heaven. By the way, we would do so much better if we would lean in to listen to heaven before we start praying for people's needs. A lot of times somebody says, I'm sick, and we're like, okay, Lord, and we just start quoting every promise. You're the great physician. You're the great I am. You're the... Maybe stop and say, Father... Jesus only spoke what the Father said. Maybe I should just be still and say, Father, what are you saying right now? Because maybe there's a specific word you have about how you want to heal this specific son or daughter. Anyway, I got so many messages I'm sharing with you today that I didn't plan on sharing, but that was good. So he's got this woman. She's got this one jar of oil. And Elisha says this. He says, I want you to go to all of your neighbors, and I want you to borrow as many empty jars as you can find, and then start pouring that one jar. And what you're going to find is it's not going to run out. And so it kept flowing until the very last one she collected was filled. As a side note, I want to give you two quick lessons for this in your life. Often your part in the miracle God wants to do in your hometown is just faithfully bringing what you have in your house. Okay, the second thing I would say is this. He delights in undignified faith that trusts his illogical ways. I'm convinced if that woman would have brought two jars, she would have had two jars filled, but she completely obeyed God without worrying about looking foolish. This is a different thing than trying to conjure up a response from God. This is a heart that knows God's promise, knows what he said, and will be bold enough to continue empty, uh, collecting empty jars. And that's a word for somebody. Somebody right now, you're like, man, I'm, I'm all out of provision, and God's telling you, go collect empty jars. And I pray he'll show you exactly what that looks like. Elisha reaches out to the sick. He reaches out to the poor. The third one he goes to is the powerless. There's a couple that built a room for Elisha to stay in. They had a dream of wanting a child, but they're way past their childbearing years. And so Elisha prays, and God grants the miracle of a child. It's amazing. They were powerless, but now they got a kid. Fast forward. Now this kid is a young adult. Many years have passed, and suddenly he gets a fatal injury to his head at work, and he's dead, and all over again, they're in the middle of this lifeless place of a dream that's dead, and they are powerless to fix it until Elisha steps in and raises him from the dead. He reaches out to the sick. He reaches out to the poor. He reaches out to the powerless. Fourth, he reaches out to the stranger. In fact, this wasn't just the stranger, the refugee, the foreigner, the alien. This was actually a a leper and an enemy of the people of God. His name was Naaman. He was the commander of Israel's enemy, Syria. And I want you to get this. It says this dude was so wicked, he terrorized the kingdom and kidnapped a girl from Israel to make uh, her his wife's servant. And now later he finds himself suffering of leprosy. And it says that this servant, this girl who knew God, who would have had every reason to say, I'm just a victim and look what's happened to me, every reason to walk in local faith, she walked out and said, there's a prophet of God in the people of Israel and he can help you, listen, my oppressor. So Elisha comes, sends him to wash seven times in the Jordan and he comes out. Like he's new. 
I'll tell you, there's, a, there's a, a lesson in Elisha and there's a lesson in that servant. Until our faith is like that servant that is willing to lay down our weapons and our labels against our oppressors and seek their cure, it is unworthy to be called the gospel. Until we will boldly end prejudices like that, our faith is really powerless. It's a faith that says, I'm actually willing to bless my enemy and pray for those who persecute me. And so what do you find? Somebody far off from God comes back home. The fifth one Elisha reached out to was practical. And this is super cool. The Bible is just so, uh, so helpful and so true. I love that the Bible doesn't always like, okay, you heard that? You heard that? Because they're getting better, right? Like, they're, they're poor. They're sick. They're powerless. It's a foreigner. Yay! And then you get to the last one. And the last one's like, oh, it's just practical. It's just an everyday need. You're like, I don't get it. And here's what happens. Elisha's in his hometown near some people who are remodeling their living space when a guy has the axe head that he's borrowed from his neighbor fly off and sink under the water. It's not earth shattering. It's no big holy moment. It's just really going to look bad for the reputation of this friend. And so in everyday life, Elisha reaches out, sees the need, and makes the axe head float. You know, there's no separation between sacred and secular. God delights in big miracles and small miracles because he delights in us. In fact, I would say this. I think we actually need to be positioned as a church to be much more passionate about the practical miracles and not always the one of, we want to see the dead raised. Well, how about raising a dead marriage? We want to see the dead raised. Well, how about raising a dead dream? And I don't say because God's not doing the other. No, God's going to do it all. He gets it all. He's worthy of it all. But I think if we would find that we're willing to step into the little miracles when you're faithful with little, you'll watch God do more. And here's what's crazy. These five that you see, you fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, it says this. Jesus shows up in his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Father anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what I see there? The poor and the stranger and the sick and the powerless and the practical. As we end this time, this is what I want to remind us as we step into a moment of activation. It's not enough for us to hear this. We've got to take this truth from our head to our heart to our feet. I want you to know right now that there are people in your own hometown that desperately need you to know Christ and you, the hope of glory. There are people in your household today who desperately need you to know Christ and you, the hope of glory. There are people in your workplace that desperately need you to know you, Christ and you, the hope of glory. People in your neighborhood, people in our church, people in our city. So many people need us to move beyond our plans for our life and take up God's. And what does that mean? For some of us, it means it's time to burn our plows. For some of us, it means it's time to take up our cloak with confidence and say, I don't get it. But when I walk here, Jesus shows up and I'm going to stop being afraid of looking foolish. I'm going to strike the water. And for some people, it is time. You've learned the Bible studies. You've gone to church. You've gotten the tools. It's time to leave home and step out in a belief that there'd be no miracle too big or too small. It's time for you and I to lose our lives so that in doing so, we can truly gain them. Would you stand with me? In this moment right now, I just want to ask three challenges, three questions. I want to ask a question right now of surrender, a question of spirit-filled confidence, and a question of radical commission. I'm going to go ahead and invite 
our ministers up front here. And I'm just going to give a few charges and challenges. Right now, I'm just going to ask if you close your eyes with me. The first question I want to ask is a question of surrender. Where is it today that God is telling you that you need to surrender your dreams for your life, your way? Because it's too small for where he wants to take you. Maybe you've been holding on with a tightly clenched fist saying, my life needs to look like this. I need this in order to be happy. Until this comes, maybe it's somebody, somebody is seeking a spouse. And I want to tell you, it's so important and so precious to the heart of God, but if you lift that thing up and make it an idol, it will choke the life out of you. For somebody this morning, you got to lay it down and say, this is a beautiful gift, but it's going to come in your time. I come to surrender today. I come to surrender my plans for my life. Come on, that's somebody. Somebody this morning, you need to lay a hand on your heart and say, God, I surrender my plans for my life. I said, I need this house. I need this income. I need this car. I need these friends. I need this following. I need this person to recognize me. I need this person to change. And I'm going to come right now and just open my hands. Maybe for somebody in the room, this is the first moment of surrender. You've been in church. You've heard all about Jesus before, but something's different today. As you're hearing today, there's some place where you're seeing the adoration of the Father that right now he knows you completely and he chooses you and there's nothing you can do to earn his favor and there's nothing you could have ever done to disqualify you from his love and he just wants to envelop you in it and wrap you in it and say, oh, my child, come home. I'm going to ask this and I'm going to ask this for your sake and nothing else. So I'm going to ask that just everybody else's eyes be closed. But if that's you this morning and you're saying that's that first time or the first time you can remember it being real and you're saying I'm ready right now to just come and surrender to Jesus, I'm not going to ask you to move from your seat, but I would just ask where you're at. Can you just lift both of your hands? That's the international sign of surrender. That you come and say, oh, Jesus, here I am right now. I'm just surrendering to you. I want your love. Nobody else looking around. That you would just come and say, here I am, Lord. I come to surrender. I come to surrender. I come to surrender. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'm going to ask in the rest of the room for brothers and sisters to join with you. If there is some place right now that you have been holding on to something that he wants you to let go of, I'm going to ask that you join those around you. And both hands up is the sign of surrender going, here I am, Jesus. I'm just letting go, just you. I just want you. I just want you. Not you and, just you. I come and I surrender. Father, I ask that weights and burdens would fall. I ask, Father, that we would be willing to follow you absolutely anywhere. Father, for each beloved child right now, I call for shame to fall, shame off of you in Jesus' name. I want to say to you, if you came right now saying, I want to come home, whether it's the first time or one millionth time. He welcomes you with open arms. He just envelops around you right now. And may all shame and guilt and striving fall away from you. And may his peace and his grace be yours abundantly. The second charge I want to give today is this. It's one of spirit-filled confidence. 
somebody right now that you know that it is time to walk in confidence with who God says you are. It's time to stop blushing and it's time to stop deflecting. It's time for you to deflect Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I'm going to ask with you that you would say, okay, God, what do you say I'm great at? What do you say is my calling? What do you say that I see? Where am I really strong? Where do I release joy? Where do I complete other people? Where do I bring the power and love of God through my life? And this is what I'm going to ask you to do. For somebody, you're going to see a picture of some place you've been deflecting. You've seen some gift and you're like, I don't even want to say that I'm good at it. I don't even want to say I'm great at it. And God's saying, enough. It's time to strike the water. You got to recognize this is me through you. Stop deflecting it. Stop blushing. Say, I don't get it. But when I do this, God's kingdom pours out and I need to have confidence to come to the throne of grace and, and help in my time of need. So I'm going to ask this. If you have a leader in your life, a missional community leader, somebody you walk with that's here, a pastor, one of these ministry leaders right up here, I'm going to ask if the Lord is showing you something that right now you would move, that you would come to one of those people. And that before we're done in this service, that you would actually come to someone and say, this is what I believe God says I'm great at in his kingdom. And it's going to be uncomfortable. Get over it. I'm going to ask you to move and speak out. This is an anointing I believe God gave me. And when we do this, this is what I want to happen. I want the other person who's hearing it to discern from the Lord. Is that true in their life? That's why I said it. this is best if it's somebody you're in a relationship with. If not, please come to one of these prayer ministers. And as you discern it, what I want that other person to do is to come into agreement with it and say, yes, I want to see the Lord release that. So right now, where is there something that you're great at? I know this is a quiet moment. I know this is like, a, I don't want to be the first one to move, but I am believing today that somebody, you've been deflecting and you need to step out now. You need to step out to find somebody and you need to start speaking right now. It's the reason we've got music playing. Don't worry, everybody ain't listening to your story, but guess what? That glory in you, everybody's gonna know soon well enough anyway. So go ahead and speak it out. I'm gonna ask you to start to move. I wanna give just a minute here. and There's one last challenge I'm gonna give, but I want you to stand out and say, this is the glory that I believe God has for my life. Maybe right now you're thinking, but there's no fruit on the tree. It's just an inkling of something I think I have and I don't have a track record for it. Would you be bold to step out and say, this is a passion God put in my heart, and I believe he's made me great at it. Right now, would you just come and tell him? I'm going to ask right now, if you're walking in the security of that thing in your life, just pray for your brothers and sisters right now. We're going to take two minutes here. Would you just pray, Father, would you just confirm to each son and daughter who you've called them to be? Lord, you put a, a unique strand of heaven in each one of your children. I don't get it, but you do it. And you say that we're like parts of a body, each one bringing a different strength, and you desperately want us to know what we bring. I am so grateful, Jesus, that the parts of my body know what they're supposed to do. I'm so grateful that the parts of my body are not confused. I'm so grateful that my heart doesn't deflect and say, oh, that feels like that's too important of a function. I'll leave that to somebody else. That would be a fatal mistake for the body. Father, would you release right now a boldness. I break false humility in the name of Jesus. This idea that we have, oh, I don't want to be prideful. No, listen, Lord, it's all you. And it's all union with you. The whole story has been about union with you. But Lord, you've done all things well. And you've poured glory in your sons and daughters and you want them to know what it is. I pray that God would speak to you clearly.
We'll take one more minute right here. If God's told you, would you go tell somebody right now, this is what I see. This is where I'm walking. Would you just be bold? This is what I believe God's made me great at. And as they tell you, would you just come into agreement? One last call I want to give us. And it's this. Where is God telling you that it is time to step out from local faith? Where is it you'd have to say right now, if you're being honest, most of my walk with Jesus is about me. My health, my family, my finances, my happiness, my friends, my problems. And right now, he's saying, hey, I want you to lift your head. I'm going to take care of you. I want you to cast all your cares on me because I care for you. But I've given you a faith that's not just local. I've given you a heart that is global. And I'm calling you right now. So this is my question. If that's you and you're saying, you know what? I want more than just that consumer thing of going after Jesus for me. I'm going to ask you to lay your hand on your heart. And I'm going to ask these questions. Who are the poor that God is laying on your heart? Who are the sick that he's put in your story? Who is it, what person or what group of people you look and they are powerless? They don't know any way back home. Who's the stranger? Maybe the person that you would look at and they are so misunderstood and so judged by most of culture, they're looked at as a leper and told to walk on the other side of the street and somebody's got to step out in the love of God and see them. What are the practical needs right now? The things maybe you've had the tendency to say, well, those aren't even really spiritual. That's just a practical need. There's no sacred and secular. It's all spiritual because you're a spirit. What are practical needs that God is saying? And I'm just going to ask Holy Spirit to each heart that would surrender right now. Lord, I come just myself. I bring my heart before you. I say, Jesus, you are my treasure. I have no other portion but you. You alone satisfy my heart, and I choose right now, Father, I don't want my faith just to be about my faith. Father, I want you to take my faith global. So I'm asking right now for me and each of my friends that you would show us the people and the opportunities and the places right now. I'm asking that you would align it. And Jesus, I make a confession. I want to invite you to make this confession. Jesus, no miracle you could call me to be a part of is too big, and no miracle you could call me to be a part of is too small. No thing is too profound, and no thing is too practical. I want to be with you in your business of restoring all people to union with you. Father, wherever you want to take my feet, take them. Come on, would somebody join me in that today? Father, wherever you want to take my feet, take them. Father, whoever it is in my world that needs the faith that is pouring through me, show me. Father, wherever there are gifts that you've called me to walk in and you want me to know them with confidence, reveal them.
the work that you're doing in this room. I thank you that the work you're doing in this room doesn't stay in this room, but it's about to move out and it's about to matter in our whole region and globally. Um, I feel compelled to tell you that I have such strong faith in friendship that I believe that all of life comes down to relationships with God and with others. And I have big faith that the people we interact with, that each interaction matters. And so if I could lend some of that to you, I want to give you my faith to make friendships that matter towards Jesus Christ. So I believe in the Holy Spirit through me to you, that you have friends and you have people and you have relationships that need to be connected to you, that they can connect to God. And then they can connect to God and move to other relationships. And that's how a community has changed. So Lord, I bless my brothers and sisters. I bless my friends. I bless the elders, um, the people that surround Overflow Church with exactly what Pastor Chuck shared that says that when we know who we are in you, we can boldly walk in confidence and we can boldly walk not having to respond to what others say about us or to us. If it doesn't align with you, we dismiss it as a lie. And we say, God, I align myself with who you say I am, that I can move into the places that you have sent me to bring glory and to bring hope and to bring restoration of relationships with you, God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.